is up for Bitcoiners? I just had an amazing conversation with Aaron Segal. He is very unknown. This is his first Bitcoin podcast. And man, he is a legend. The guy has a deep history in the financial space working for a hedge fund. And he recently got into Bitcoin and he dropped this incredible article on Bitcoin Magazine, the Bitcoin Information Theory, BIT. And when people say Bitcoin is digital gold, yes, that's useful and helpful, but it really does, in my opinion, hold Bitcoin back. I think it's a lot more than digital gold. And I think that this Bitcoin information theory is really encompasses what Bitcoin is a lot, a lot better. And uh, really the whole, the crux of the argument is, you know, work t- to the power of technology equals order, but there's actually, we use money in order to communicate um, value across. So there's an aspect of this theory that there's also monetary entropy. And what Bitcoin does is it reduces monetary entropy to nothing. So right now we live in a world where there's technology and innovation, people are putting in work, but because there's monetary entropy, it actually uh, distresses and, uh, and distorts the pricing signal. And it inhibits our ability to create order out of, out of entropy and out of, you know, the work that we put into whatever the things that we are doing as society and people. So what Bitcoin offers is the ability to take monetary entropy down to zero. So what happens when there's no longer monetary entropy and all the work that we put into gets multiplied by the power or, you know, you know, uh, gets multiplied by the power of technology. And on the other side, it's just pure, clear communication of informational ordering. I'm doing not nearly enough justice of talking about this theory. You need to read the article. You need to listen to this podcast because Aaron breaks it all down from, you know, from top to bottom way better than I just did. So before we get into it, though, let's talk about Bitcoin 2021. You guys, best event ever. It is happening this week. Today is the first and the event is happening on the third, fourth and fifth. I'm already in Miami. I'm going to be giving Aaron a high five because he's in Miami and uh, it's going to be awesome. Bitcoin 2021 is going to be the ultimate gathering of Bitcoiners around the world. People are flying across the world in the pandemic to be here for this gathering. And our CEO really, really did a great job of pumping it up on the What Bitcoin Did podcast with David McCormick. So check that one out, David Daly. And uh, if you're listening to it and you haven't bought your ticket, it might be already too late, but Go to b.tc forward slash conference and check it out. You can get a ticket there. Uh, we probably have already sold out by the time you're listening to this. Uh, so you can check out the live stream online. It's going to be sick too. And uh, de- definitely don't mi- miss out on Bitcoin 2022. But if you want your last chance at a ticket, if you're already in Florida and you want to go to the best Bitcoin event ever in history, biggest by far, um, Bitcoin 2021, again, b.tc forward slash conference. And you can discount your ticket by $400 if you pay with Bitcoin. So if you use Bitcoin to buy your ticket, you actually get to get your ticket for way, way less, $400 less. And MoonPay, our sponsor and our payments provider, they allow you to get that discount while using your fiat. You get your cake and you can eat it too. So you can use Apple Pay, Google Pay, your debit card, your credit card, all to pay for MoonPay, or sorry, all to pay for your ticket using MoonPay, and we get Bitcoin, you pay fiat, and you get that steep discount. So don't miss out on the discount. Use MoonPay to buy your ticket, and don't miss out on Bitcoin 2021 or the Bitcoin 2021 live stream if you can't make it to the event at this late stage. I understand you missed out. It is what it is. Me and Aaron are going to rock it in Miami, uh, but until then, enjoy this conversation that we had about the Bitcoin information theory. It is a freaking mind-blowing. Peace. Bitcoiners, I am sitting across the screen from Aaron Segal. Um, Aaron, I don't even know how you like came into my life, but an email drops into my email and then followed up by a text from an old coworker. And he's like, yo, take this, take this uh, draft seriously. It says, you know, B- BIT, Bitcoin Information Theory. And I was like, okay, sure. I'll, I'll look into this. And like two or three days later, I actually read the draft. And I immediately follow follow Aaron, immediately DM him back like, yo, this was one of the most incredible articles I've ever read. I feel like this article, you know, I was just saying to Aaron, like, you know, people say Bitcoin's digital gold. No, what like that, that's really a subset of what Bitcoin truly is. I feel like this article does a fantastic job of kind of like expanding 
what Bitcoin means, what the introduction of Bitcoin means to commerce, to communication, to measuring uh, value and, you know, to social scalability. So those are some big words. Um, Aaron, again, this is an incredible piece. And you were just telling me about how it just, you know, almost like came upon you like enlightenment. Um, <laughs> let's start off by like just introducing you. Who the heck is Aaron Segal? Like, you know, how, what's your background? How did you even set yourself up to understand physics enough to write something like this? Sure, CK. Um, well, first of all, thank you for the very kind words. Um, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so basically, I have no physics background. So that's my caveat. Um, other than just being kind of a, uh, you know, a hobbyist in, in physics, just interested in it and having read some late, late physics and done all the education that a lot of us have done over the years, but, but really no expertise. But um, I kind of came across this idea from like an amalgamation of different things that I had been reading. And, um, I, I, you know, so my background is actually in finance, um, ironically, you know, so I've been in quote unquote Wall Street for uh, 16 years. Um, I was a macro trader, investor and portfolio manager at various hedge funds. Um, I, I'm currently at a hedge fund that I you know, like to keep under wraps at the moment, but um, um, <laughs> to keep my Bitcoin life separate. But um, you know, I, I came across Bitcoin through my journey, speaking of digital gold and, and kind of that not being a sufficient um, characterization of Bitcoin. I came across Bitcoin through my investment in gold. And um, I had been investing in gold basically ever since 2018. I, I kind of started thinking um, and I was pushing this to a previous hedge fund I worked with that um, we were entering a period where we were going to start seeing a lot of uh, similarities to the late 1960s and early 70s. I ended up being a little early uh, with with that uh, with that idea, but as a result, that led me down to investing more in gold and, and looking more at the history of money and the history of monetary um, evolution, so to speak, and, and how gold has been used over time um, as a stored value, as as a um, estate money and how it's been kind of uh, molested over time by the state and, and gradually kind of whittled away until we finally broke the gold standard. But anyway, so so come March 2020, um, I, I'm investing heavily personally in gold and gold miners and gold mining equities. And I had a small position in Bitcoin. I'd been around in Bitcoin in the 2017, uh, you know, the 2017 cycle and, and traded around it a little bit. But never was a real believer, obviously, given that I traded around it. I think I bought it at a thousand and sold it at three thousand and thought I was a hero. Um, and then turned out, you know, felt like an idiot later. But um, the main reason I chose to look at, at Bitcoin again was because I saw that gold wasn't going up the way it should be going up, given the macro environment that we were in. And so I said, you know what, I need to understand Bitcoin if this truly is taking quote unquote market share. And then I went, and then so that was that was the initial like attention grabber. And then I, just like so many of us, I fell down the rabbit hole. And not only did I, to get back to kind of where we started with this conversation, not only did I realize that Bitcoin was going to be way superior than gold and that I need to immediately sell all of my gold holdings and start rotating it into Bitcoin, which I did. And um, that beyond that, um, there was so much more than just this digital gold narrative. That was it's just such an easy bogey. That, you know, it's this bogey, and, and, and I understand it's the good, narrative. but it's yeah. it's also a, it really holds Bitcoin down. Like in in again, like I I truly think that this is uh, BIT Bitcoin Information Theory. I think this it's so much better. Well, thank you, and um, yeah, I, I think other people have certainly addressed this, and I, and I have to credit. You know, there's numerous writings that I've read that kind of helped helped me, and I think there's a lot of other Bitcoiners who have this notion in mind. It's it's just not always an easy concept to articulate because these are such big ideas and i think i forget what i was listening to recently but you know pe people have equated bitcoin to this you know breeding ground for polymaths and so you ask about physics well you may not know about physics but you might have to learn a little bit about physics you may not know um about our energy grid but you're gonna have to learn about that or cryptography or philosophy or austrian economics um listen i, I was an, an economics student in college in grad school and i you know in through my job i traded macroeconomic theories all the time in practice 
And it never once occurred to me, um, you know, I, I did very little Austrian economic reading up until, you know, last couple of years. And, and that was initially through gold. And then, and, and um, but yes, gold is completely insufficient, but it's a good first bogey, right? If, if, especially when you're talking to an investor community, investors like to understand your TAM, your, your total addressable market, you know? And, and, and so when you say everything, that's like, someone's going to scoff at you and say, okay, you're crazy. See you later. So if you say gold, and you say gold is one trillion in Bitcoin, you know, last year, for example, was 300 billion or whatever. Okay, wow, that's an interesting asymmetric trade. And so for investors, it's easy to grasp that concept. But what I, what I, what I've, as I've come to study it more and more, what I think, A, it just fails to, to really exemplify what it really has to offer society because gold is a, is a negative trade. But look at all the people who own gold. Well, there are a lot of old, angry people who, you know, have been screaming at the clouds for years. And um, and because gold is a get in the bunker, the world is ending kind of trade or kind of investment or kind of asset. It doesn't solve problems. Gold um, protects you from chaos, protects you from, from decimation, but it doesn't actually propose a solution for society. And to me, that is the biggest narrative changer for, for Bitcoin is it actually says, wait, we can protect you, but also save the world. And that, you know, that is, I think you have to get the digital gold thing before you can get this. I think it's hard to just leapfrog that. But I think ultimately, if we can get people to kind of comprehend the bigger picture, then then that's you're, we're kind of one step closer to to orange filling the next guy. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I told you that I just like earlier today interviewed Jeff Snyder for the second time for FedWatch. And I feel like he's dancing around Bitcoin. He's not accepting like Bitcoin's differentiator from other cryptocurrencies and what's happening in, in the DeFi space. Um, but I told him to read your article because I like I think like you just have a deeper understanding of economics and you've applied a deeper understanding of like, you know, almost like a holistic understanding to what Bitcoin's doing to communications. And you've really articulated it in an awesome way in this article. Um, Let's jump into. Well, let's like, hope we can first, get Jeff Snyder in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think my internet just kind of cut out there a little bit. Uh, did you catch that? All that? Uh, yeah, you cut out for a brief second, but I think we're good now. Okay. Yeah. Let me just start over really quick, just to make sure we have a. It's clean. Um, yeah. So I w- just earlier today, I was talking to Jeff Snyder on the FedWatch podcast over with Ansel Lindner, and I feel like he's dancing around Bitcoin. He's he's not quite there yet. Um, but I, I gave him your article just because I feel like it has such a holistic take to what Bitcoin can be in the, in the, the game changing edge that it brings from like a, a valuation and a monetary perspective in general. Um, yeah, I, I guess would love to just kind of get into the first aspect of this article, which is, uh, the, the Buckmeister Fuller, um, kilowatt dollar, um, CK, kind of idea. you cut out, you cut out for a few. See, can you hear me, CK? Yeah. Um, Sorry, you, you okay. cut out for a couple, like a minute there. Yeah, I keep seeing your face freezing. I mean, my internet see, it says that it's good. I'm seeing like red bars on your end. What are you getting on on Zoom? Um, I'm looking good on my end. Um, I, I wasn't having any issues up until like just a moment ago. Let me see. We're, we're just talking about such revolutionary shit that... Yeah, we're, we're breaking the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe uh, yeah. we turn off the video. <laughs> uh, okay, no, no worries. Get mine on for now in the bottom, and, and if it, we still have problems, just let me know. All right. Yeah. So uh, I think you heard the question, though. We can just kind of jump in here. Yeah. Um, so, so basically, um, I, I think the crux of the article is that you first have to kind of understand the, the store value concept, which I think we all understand very well, but um, I, th- I think you have to realize that, you know, the store value is something just very in- innate and inherent to kind of the progress of human civilization. Um, I think Nick Sabo, you know, wrote, wrote a great piece uh, on this years ago, probably, you know, way before the Bitcoin era shelling out. And then I think he wrote a couple follow-ups that, that also talked about this, but, you know, kind of transferring evolution, what I think you referred to as evolutionary fitness for future generations. And, um, 
you know, what is meant by that is even before, and this is actually another kind of article I'm working on, which is kind of the evolution of a lot of people think you need to have a medium of exchange before you can have a store value. Or that's, a, that's at least a highly debated concept. But um, essentially, before we had a division of labor, before we had a need to move from a barter system and scale socially, you talked about social scaling before, and scale socially uh, to a greater level, um, we still had stores of value. We had institutions in place. We had marriage. We had funerals. We had war tributes and taxes that all required a store of value. And in order, and if you were a victor in a war, you would want to transfer that value to your future generations. So, I mean, this is, it's a very kind of deep ingrained concept in humanity. And so once you kind of start there, you, you, and you kind of start from that anthropological level, you start to realize that this is a social technology. And, um, and, it, and not only is it a social technology, it's kind of the social technology. We, you know, um, I think, you know, you, you've all known Harari, a lot, of, a lot of people here may have read uh, his books, uh, Homo Sapiens or Homo Deus. Um, and he talks a lot about, um, you know, ideas and beliefs and our ideas and our ability to tell stories is kind of what allows us to, um, you know, transfer information to, to a level that we can scale socially and, and and I think money is a huge part of that. And, and so if, if, if everything that allows us to scale at its core is information, and um, we can get into what information means in a minute, but if, but if that is the case, then money is an integral part of that, if not the most vital part of that. Um, because price is what allows us to determine value and to communicate value to others, to transfer uncertainty to others, and all sorts of other things that Bitcoiners have been talking about for years that we don't need to get into. But um, you know, without that, we can't really scale socially beyond without outside of a small population. So anyway, um, then I came across you know qual- you know as I'm kind of going down the rabbit hole and putting all these disparate kind of ideas together, I come across. Claude Shannon's information theory. And I knew nothing about it. I'd heard maybe about it briefly, but in short, um, his theory just says, as I, as I kind of talk about in the article, that you know, he, he, was, he was dealing with computer science issues and, and um, kind of losing information in the process of transferring uh, data across a network. And basically he, you know, again, this is beyond my pay grade, I'm by no means a computer scientist, but what I thought was so elegant about the base of his theory was that he viewed entropy, and we can define entropy as I did in the article as or you know essentially order and disorder. And in physics, it's referred to entropy is referred to kind of the arrow of time. Basically, as time progresses, um, you know, energy, of course, as we know, is not lost or gained, but energy becomes less organized over time over a long period of time. However, there are pockets of order that, that come out through that, that entropy. And there's a, a really great physicist, anyone who's interested in physics should, should read his books, Brian Greene, he, he's written a lot of books. Um, and he, he's really good at kind of taking very complex uh, theoretical physics and breaking it down for lay people, like most of us uh, mortals. And then, you know, he, he basically calls it the entropy two-step, whereas like, Sure, you know, you have a big bang and ever since then entropy kind of just expands massively over time, but there are pockets of order like Earth, like the sun, like solar systems. And on a much, much smaller economic, human economic scale, we can witness that too. Um, so we, we do work, you know, and part of that work is we're expending our energy. We ourselves are little bundles of low entropy of like little order that's been created in this chaotic world. And, and we take that energy, we take our own personal energy and we do work. And then we uh, create, you know, higher entropy by, by driving a car and causing that exhaust to dissipate into the environment. But in doing so that work creates information and that information can, can be used by us as technology. And in, and in doing so, um, we create lower entropy for a time. And so what I, you know, so I have all these ideas floating around in my head and basically Claude Shannon says he defines information and in his information theory as basically the ability to take uncertainty and reduce it. And, and, and essentially that's what entropy is. So he kind of connected all of the dots there with information, entropy, and uncertainty. 
And to me, money is information. You know, in my reading, I kind of think at its most fundamental level, money is uncertainty. Uh, sorry, money is the is the ability to uh, reduce uncertainty at a, at a kind of socioeconomic level, and um, and therefore there's this connection between uh, money and entropy, and that that's kind of where this this whole kind of concept really came to be. Um, so basically, the equation is, <laughs> and it's not really as complicated as it sounds, and it's really more of a mental model. Like I by no means think that this is a a kind of predictive model like stock to flow or something like that, because this is more conceptual. It's more of a mental model because entropy is a very hard thing to calculate or, you know, predictively calculate. Um, but I think what makes this a very helpful mental model and why I can orange pill people like Jeff Snyder, perhaps, is that it helps you kind of connect all of these dots um, where, where you can understand what Bitcoin really fundamentally achieves at its deepest level um, and how adoption can scale somewhat indefinitely, actually, relative to technological progress and basically how destructive fiat is as the antithesis of that. So, and we'll get into technological progress and how that's connected to all of this. But the, the basic equation is thermo, thermodynamic energy equals the, the, you know, the negative equivalent of informational entropy. So the more thermodynamic entropy you get, the more disorder you get from expending energy and doing work, you know, and, and this is more, think of this more from the economic scale rather than from kind of like an astrophysics scale, then um, the more information is created that can be ordered. But, and, and so that's a nice little symmetrical um, kind of concept to, to think, and I always love symmetry. So I kind of went with that. And then, and then from there you say, okay, but that's missing something because, um, you know, I, I've been doing a lot of work on, um, on trying to understand um, a lot of the, the, the FUD or a lot of the, you know, the cynicism and skepticism about uh, the stock to flow model. And one of the problems that people have with the stock to flow model is that it, um, you know, it implicates that Bitcoin can scale infinitely or indefinitely, I should say. Um, and it doesn't have kind of this asymptotic curve, like a, an, S, uh, an S curve that people talk about when they talk about kind of adoption curves. And I was trying to think of a way in which that could actually be valid, in which Bitcoin doesn't kind of just slow down in this, in this kind of asymptotic um, diminishing return, you know, function. So, um, so in doing that, I started thinking about how technology can scale and all the different kind of power laws that allow technology to scale. You know, you can have obviously to the power of two, the power of three, and, and so on and so forth. I think I think the stock to flow model uses like a cubic or a third power uh, scaling. But anyway, so that's kind of in my head as well. And so I'm thinking, well, for this equation to really have value or add value or tell us something interesting, we have to think about how technology allows us to scale that information, you know, that, that, that you know, so for, as we, as we do energy, as we, sorry, as we do work, um, and that creates uh, more entropy, that needs to be raised to a certain power in order to, to get us, you know, a, a, an even greater level of information out of that. So for every unit of energy spend, you get one unit of lower uh, entropy information out of that. But a new technological innovation comes along, and that allows you to get even more out of that. So you get these kind of um, you start to have an exponential curve, and that's what we see with kind of human progress, and that's also what we see with Bitcoin. And so I started thinking, hmm, that's an interesting parallel that Bitcoin allows for all of this. Um, so so that's your second um, part of the formula. So you have thermo thermodynamic energy, uh, sorry, entropy to the power of technological innovation equals negative informational entropy, which is essentially more ordered information, which is what we all want in the world. That's, that's kind of how we define human progress, right? Um, and then I said, okay, that's, that's the equation. But wait, it's missing something. If money is also technology, as we just talked about, money is this kind of social technology and perhaps the most fundamental social technology, then this needs to be kind of added conceptually to the equation. And um, since money is a technology, it needs to be part of the of the power law of technological innovation. And 
So you have another uh, variable there that's called monetary entropy. And monetary entropy for the purpose of just simplification, there's kind of lots of ways you can think about it, but just think about it as inflation. You know, think about it as the rate of inflation of your money. And of course, we can get into how you define that, which is a very tricky, difficult, kind of muddy, uh, <laughs> muddy road to go down. But, but you know, just to keep things simple for the time being, um, that that is what you get from monetary entropy. And if you have no inflation, if you have no monetary inflation, then you have basically you have no uncertain you have no uncertainty. Um, so, so you have a fiat money and you have monetary entropy that creates vast amounts of uncertainty um, because it's constantly inflating and, and that is fighting the technological innovation. But if you had something like Bitcoin, which of course does have an inflation rate, but it's, it's essentially de minimis, especially on a relative scale. And as we all know, it's getting smaller and smaller over time, um, then your uncertainty goes down to zero. The entropy goes down to zero. It can't be negative. You can't have negative uncertainty, um, but you can have zero uncertainty, which is what absolute scarcity is. So when you kind of take the full equation, you have thermodynamic entropy to the power of technological innovation minus monetary entropy equals your negative informational entropy. Now, I know that sounds like a mouthful, um, and, but, but essentially what that's saying is that the work we do can be compounded by technological innovation with a good money to, to result in a, a massive increase in informational order that we can scale and that we can benefit from and that can create abundance. If that money is non-inflationary, it allow it gets out of the way of technological innovation because you're you're taking a power of technological innovation minus monetary entropy that happens to be zero, and so you 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 get the entirety of that technological innovation's abundance. Or you have a fiat number which will create a positive number, and so eventually you could actually have a negative uh, power law with fiat currency. I mean, so that's a mouthful. I'll pause now for we, for us to kind of uh, you you could. I mean, no, you you laid it out perfectly, and I love the equation because like you could argue that we're getting into the negative territory. This is where fiat starts to actually get in the way of technological innovation. Uh, folks like Jeff Booth have argued that these are opposing forces, which you illustrate in your equation, which is like. Uh, on the technological innovation side, everything is getting cheaper. Prices are deflating, yeah. you know, Moore's law, all this stuff. And then on the flip side, the inflationary, let's call it just manipulated money supply. I don't like saying deflate, inflationary, deflationary, because it's too conclusive. It's manipulated. The whole thing is opaque and manipulated. I agree. Yeah. So this opaque manipulated, that increases monetary entropy, which is negates technological innovation, right? And it, 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 disallows us to uh, create more order, which, you know, theoretically Bitcoin could solve, right? That is that's yeah. the promise. That is the promise. And that's also how you can get to kind of an exponent, like a kind of an indefinite scaling exponentially. Um, and, and to your point about Jeff Booth, I, I do want to give him a shout out because his, his views, his book has been a huge influence on kind of my thinking about this because for 15 years as an investor, I was really struggling with the whole notion of how money can be printed and, and you know the Fed can kind of increase all these reserves and yet we have this, these kind of massive deflationary forces. Some of them are good forces, some of them are bad. And I think he just did a great job of framing it in a way. And I think you hit the nail on the head just now by saying that we shouldn't, we shouldn't make this narrative about deflation or inflation because those are loaded words. You know, inflation makes people think of 1970s. In my personal view, even though I thought this a couple of years ago, I no longer think that we can really repeat the 1970s for a lot of reasons, which we can get into if you want, but that's a whole different rabbit hole. Um, but I, so I think his book really helps us understand the, the wheel spinning that we're doing and trying to fight the force of progress and how if we, if we find something that can basically go you know, in tandem with that flow, with where, with where innovation wants to go, that abundance will kind of make itself evident to us at a much 
in a much more uh, prominent way. So, so yeah, I, I, uh, I totally agree with that. Okay. So as part of like this, I, I, again, I recommend to everyone who's listening, like read the article because um, Aaron just does such a fantastic job, but you know, as part of this, you kind of paint a picture of the Kardashev scale and these different types of like societies. Can you kind of talk about, um, you know, energy capture and, um, you know, capturing all the energy around us and like yeah. what that means for humanity and how Bitcoin enables that? Yeah. So the Kardashev scale, for, for those who aren't, aren't aware of it, um, is kind of this esoteric um, idea brought about brought about from this Russian physicist, uh, I believe his name is Nicholas Kar- uh, Kardashev, in the late 1960s. Um, obviously, at the time, you know, we, we were dealing with kind of the nuclear world um, and all of the positives and negatives and scary aspects that that brought to society. Um, and basically, his theory was just kind of a roadmap for how society can, um, or civilization as a whole, can can scale and what it means for civilization to scale and the requirements that he basically uh, realized all relate to our ability to harness energy. So I believe he had a type zero, a, a type one, a type two, and a type three civilization. And a type zero civilization is essentially where we are right now, which is that we're able to harness some of the energy on our planet, but we are not able to harness uh, anywhere uh, near the entirety of the energy on our planet. Uh, type one civilization, which you could argue we are hopefully working towards, and, and we can get into why Bitcoin potentially can help uh, help us breach that barrier, uh, um, is a civilization that harnesses is all the energy of its planet. Um, and a type two civilization is a, is a, uh, a type three Kardashev scale civilization um, is able to harness all of the, um, all the energy of its solar system. I believe I said that for the second one, but I meant all the energy of its kind of, uh, of its, of its local sun. Um, but we're probably, getting on. so so um and i didn't really get into it but i just kind of wanted to inception <laughs> inception people a little bit with that which is that because because that's essentially what we are talking about is how do we get to a type one civilization and um i think it's obviously very timely right now given all of the fud that we're experiencing um once once again about bitcoin and its energy consumption um, but I, you know, I think I saw on Twitter today, for example, um, galaxy digital put out a note talking about comparing the terawatt usage of Bitcoin mining to bank, the banking system to gold mining. And I think all, you know, it was, it's great to get that data point and it's a really, you know, Twitter, um, appropriate kind of data point. Cause it gives you some, some very, very blunt information, um, in a short period of time. But, um, and so I'm all for it, but I also think it misses the point, like by a long shot, which is that we're not talking about, you know, Bitcoin mining relative to how much it costs to, you know, electrify a Wells Fargo branch office or a gold, a gold mining rig and, and you know, and, and how much energy all of these kind of mundane operational um, things work. We're talking about the entire system. And I know Bitcoiners, you know, when Elon kind of went off, like Bitcoiners all said, oh, you know, how much does the fiat system cost and all this? And that's great, but you need to be able to kind of articulate why that is to get people to realize it because Bitcoiners have already kind of gone down that path. Bitcoiners already understand how the fiat, how wasteful the fiat system is. But you need to kind of go through it in a very um, kind of logical way to, to help um, people who aren't there yet understand exactly what we're fighting for here and and um so it's great to you know i think um um i think ross stevens did a you know a great job of and i think nick carter has of course we all know done a very good job of articulating that and visual i think ross stevens visualized it as kind of this flattening of of the energy um usage around the globe is that you have these kind of pockets 
of uh, of capacity waste, and Bitcoin basically floods those those barren pockets and raises them to a point where everything is flat. And when everything is flat, everything is accessible. And I love that visualization for Bitcoin's energy consumption and where we're where we're heading. And I do think, getting back to your question about the Kardashev scale, that that you know equations like this help us kind of give us a mental model for how we can get there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard for someone who doesn't like believe that Bitcoin's valuable and doing something valuable for them to like, you know, I guess like justify, let's say, Bitcoin's energy usage, even though, you know, they justify other energy usage, which is extremely wasteful. They just don't think about it. Like Bitcoin wears it on its sleeve to some degree. But like in order to get the com, like to move the common consensus from, we have no resources, we're growing at an unsustainable rate, Earth is going to die to no Earth in the universe has a tremendous amount of resources. And if only we could reduce monetary uncertainty, monetary entropy, we could actually order things in a way that makes sense where we're not wasting. And then we could actually even go as far as to actually capturing everything and leveraging everything versus you know, being fearful of leveraging energy, like that's a massive mental shift. It's almost like changing your, your belief system, your mental operating system, especially the ones that our generation's kind of been built on, right? Like if you think yeah. of millennials and 80, anyone born eighties on, they've almost been like brainwashed to some degree to, to believe that there is massive scarcity, like, uh, yeah. and I mean, yes, it, it, to some degree, like, you know, this equation, this way of thinking of Bitcoin, it kind of, it flips it on his head. Yeah, um, I think I think that's very true, and I think I, a lot of Bitcoiners have had to reassess their preconceived notions and some of their their frameworks that you know, both politically or um, environmentally. Um, I know I've had to do some of that and some of that soul searching, and that's what's great about Bitcoin, though, is it is it forces you to question your belief systems in a world that where everything is. Um, especially nowadays, everything is one big pump and dump and everything is very, you know, we have, we suffer from a lot of short-termism and we suffer, we suffer from all these kind of um, echo chambers that we're all in. And I'm sure, you know, obviously Bitcoiners are, are guilty of the echo chamber effect too, to some degree. But um, I think, you know, I think if you're going to put your life savings into something, you know, an echo chamber doesn't suffice. You have to be brutally honest with some of your beliefs um, in, in order to, to really kind of, go all in and then hodl and then hodl during those times like now that are, that are, you know, a little more difficult, but um, yeah. So, so, so I, I think that that concept of energy abundance um, being a myth is, is a vital step. I think, you know, nuclear is a great case study for that um, and how certain, um, how certain political uh, goals can shift. And I think Alex Gladstein wrote a great note that kind of addressed some of that the other day about the petrodollar system. And uh, I would also recommend everybody to read some of Lynn Alden's work about the petrodollar system to give that, that gives a good, you know, history, historical background. And, and by the way, like gold bugs have known about this petrodollar issue for years. I mean, there's a, there's a gold oil ratio that a lot of gold bugs follow. So, I mean, this is not new in, in that sense, but what's new is that Bitcoin actually offers a solution. Like I said before, gold is just like, ah, oh, the world is ending, you know, at least we got our gold. Bitcoin says, well, we have a better store value for all the reasons that, you know, that's not, let's not get into that in, in this interview because that's a whole different rabbit hole, but, but it's, it's a better store value, it has better monetary features in every single way, but it also solves problems. It allows us to get to that next level. Um, gold has, has zero solution to, to that to that that issue. Um, and um, so, I, so I do think it's going to require a mental shift on the part of society to kind of understand um, the, the energy dynamic and also understand that sometimes more energy consumption leads to more use, which leads to more economies of scale. There's like Jevons paradox that talks about this, you know, the, the cheaper you make a commodity, the more people use it actually. Um, and, and, and so actually the more impactful it gets. So that's you know, the, the problem sometimes with, with the oil cost curve coming down is that people just use more oil. And so um, even though it gets more efficient to produce it, it ends up um, being just as um, used in the environment. But when you're talking about renewables, that's a good thing. 
And uh, I think that's also something that's kind of lost on a lot of people because of our focus over the last hundred years on oil as a as a uh, as a main commodity. And where did I read recently? You know, the whale oil went through a very similar <laughs> went through a very similar process as, as whale oil. I think it was Kathy Wood actually who talked about this, but. Um, but yeah, it, you know, and I think even though this article is very um, kind of abstract in, in the way it addresses a lot of these concepts, um, I do think it will be helpful to have more concrete examples to give people to, to really help them see, you know, a very particular instance in society where this is occurring and where fiat is kind of adding to the wastefulness of, of all of this energy and where we could actually shift to a system that that is is kind of I, I hate to, again like you said I don't like to use the word inflationary or deflationary but deflationary in the sense that it creates more for less on a societal level and that that's going to take some time it's going to probably take a few more cycles to get us there. Yeah, I don't know. It could take some time or uh, Bitcoin's uh, the positive benefits of using Bitcoin as a measuring system are going to be so dramatic that it's going to be impossible to avoid it. I, I personally think that that's going to be the case that in the next five to 10 years, like Bitcoin is going to get so obvious that everyone's going to get on board. And honestly, I think it's because of this equation. Bitcoin reduces monetary entropy to zero. And therefore, you can actually make benefit. You can, you know, you can put work in using technology and create order much more efficiently. And that's going to create like value. That's going to create growth. And we're a world where, you know, in the fiat world, there's so much monetary entropy that there's like, we're actually devolving into pure chaos. And, you know, folks like Jeff Booth, or sorry, uh, Jeff Snyder are right to say that, you know, there are supply chain destructions, there is destruction of growth, there is deflation to some degree. Like, I think that they're, they're, they're right because monetary entropy is through the roof. Like the past yeah. year, it's through the roof. Like, how can anyone make proper economic calculation? And then on top of that, there's chaos in, in other levels of, uh, of, you know, society as well. Yeah. I mean, I work, you know, what I do professionally in, in the hedge fund industry right now is, is more on the corporate debt side. And I've seen this market turn into a, a complete joke. Like it's not, the, this market is not clearing. Uh, Drucker Miller had a great observation the other day uh, in an interview he did uh, with USC, the University of, uh, uh, of Southern California, where he basically talked about something I witnessed all of last year, which was that the issuance of corporate debt was $1 trillion last year. In most recessionary environments, you have deleveraging. And, and in that deleveraging, I think the typical recession, you see an average decline of debt on the corporate scale of around $500 billion. And to me, that $1 trillion is not just debt. That is money. That is money being printed in, in the asset realm. Maybe, not in, it, maybe it's not... Um, circulating in the real economy um, and it's not productive money you know that money is being hoarded that that credit is being used to keep companies afloat at the uh, at the cost of other competitors and keep and, and take capital away from places where the creative destruction would allow for something better to form in its place um, but I do want to point to one thing you said which is about the the, the you know because I think this is also important right now which is um, how monetary and Bitcoin allows monetary entropy to go to zero and that it can't go below zero. And I think that's a subtle, but very important thing to discuss because so many of the altcoins around there around right now, and some of these other protocols are trying to solve this problem and, and, and kind of create a better money in some ways and, or, or create a better kind of ecosystem. Some of them don't even know what they are, but, um, What's important about that is you can't improve upon something that can't improve be improved upon. You know, if if someone already solved, and, and I think you know Robert Breedlove talks about this eloquently in his, um, you know, the number zero in Bitcoin article that he that I think a lot of Bitcoiners are very familiar with, and and, and how it's kind of a zero to one solution. And the reason it's a zero to one solution is because of absolute scarcity and monetary entropy of zero is just another way. Of articulating that absolute scarcity, and that's why when people try to say, "Oh, this is just my space," it's going to be—it's uh, not—it's—it's it's a completely false comparison. It's kind of a conflated comparison because MySpace didn't solve a problem to, to the point where it couldn't be improved upon. MySpace created a new market. You know, it was a new technology 
on, on top of a an, an existing ecosystem, which was was the internet. And um, but we don't have like a new internet. You know, we can improve upon the internet, and, and Bitcoin will be improved upon. We're seeing the taproot um, uptake right now, and um, but you can't you can't take something below zero. And and the first network to scale to do that is going to succeed because there's no there's no way past that. You know, the, you didn't need another printing press uh, after the first printing press was invented. Um, you and so 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 uh, to that analogy, comparing Bitcoin to MySpace is like comparing the printing press innovation with publishers. Like it's not a publisher, it is the printing press. Anyway, I think that's, you know, with all the, with all the altcoin pumps we're seeing, I think that's an important consideration to keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, and we, we could talk about altcoins. I do a podcast with a, a massive altcoin pumper, David Hoffman, called POV Crypto, where, you know, we butt heads on what's really going on. Um, but I don't want to spend time on that. I want to talk about what <laughs> happens. What happens when monetary entropy goes to zero? Because only Bitcoin is promising that. Like no other altcoin is is even remotely offering that. They're for the most part, most altcoins they they justify their existence by saying that Bitcoin cannot exist sufficiently and bring monetary entropy to zero, and therefore monetary entropy is necessary, and that's why. Ethereum has to have tail emissions. That's why Monero has to have tail emissions. That's why so-and-so needs to have a flexible monetary policy so we can adjust as, you know, things go to make sure that the monetary system is actually even sustainable. Like, so, like, again, let's ignore that because we think that Bitcoin actually offers the ability to take monetary entropy to zero. And, like, I'm just kind of curious based on what you see and what you're thinking, like, what does that mean for society? Like, where does this go? So, so you said, uh, I mean, those are great questions. Uh, I wish I had the answer. Um, I can certainly give you kind of my, my, my thoughts, but um, you, you had said something um, a few minutes earlier about kind of the end game that you see here, which is that things kind of escalate quickly at some point. You know, certainly this could take a few cycles, but, but you see a scenario where things kind of escalate quickly and adoption um, kind of hits a hyper exponential uh, scale, at least, and, and of course, this is all we all have to kind of compare this relative to a fiat, and relative to a fiat and its current dollars. You know, um, I there's there's a there's an analogy that I like to use um, with my colleagues. I publish kind of a weekly um, a weekly kind of macro piece that I send around to my entire company, and 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 one thing I published last year was this kind of new framing of what's happening to the, 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 the macroeconomic backdrop, which was that from 2009, you know, post the great financial crisis up until, you know, right, right, right um, before COVID, we were in this kind of Goldilocks zone. Everyone on Wall Street loves to use this term Goldilocks. And what they mean by Goldilocks is just this uh, environment of very kind of low steady inflation that allowed interest rates to remain low, allowed growth stocks to have to be able to discount their cash flows, uh, their future cash flows into the present at a very high level, which is essentially a fancy way of saying you're stealing from the future, um, but but you're doing it in a justified way, uh, mathematically. And then, um, and then, you know, you, you didn't have any risk of really inflation getting out of hand because banks weren't lending. Um, they, they were really kind of tightening and hoarding all of those kind of bank reserves that QE had helped them accumulate. And ironically, those bank reserves, I think they peaked at around like 2.6 trillion or 3 trillion. I, I might be getting the numbers wrong in like 2016, 2017. They gradually started to go down up until they, they hit their bottom at around like $1.4 trillion in 2019. And that's when the Fed actually came in to save the day yet again. And this gets lost sometimes when we think about what they did post-COVID because it was such so many orders of magnitude higher than that. But the Fed came in when we already had bank reserves at $1.4 trillion, which was not enough liquidity in the system to help the kind of overnight lending uh, rate in, in the financial system. And not to bore everyone with kind of all this financial um, you know, history and, and, and why this I'm connecting this to what to what your question is, is that 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 era was already kind of showing breaking point. Um, that was kind of this transitional era that we went from kind of where the fiat system worked 
to where it kind of no longer works. And you, and you kind of talk, and, and I do think like a fiat system actually had a, had a purpose at one point. Like, I think, I think it was um, Pratik Gora who talked about this in, in an article. And he's a really underfollowed guy. He writes some really great stuff that I recommend everybody in your audience check out his work. But um, he talked about how, you know, how currencies, how, how fiat currencies can actually, you know, they serve their purpose at their time. They, they allow, you know, sometimes we need a central authority to trust in order to allow us to scale socially, like we talked about what, what money's purpose is, is to be. But the problem is, is that it creates, as we know, uh, you know, key man risk or single point of failure risk, which is that if that central authority can no longer be trusted, the whole system kind of explodes. And um, that's happened as, as, again, as a lot of um, students of history know, that's happened time and time again throughout, throughout history. Um, with, with fiat currencies or, or even with various kind of uh, uh, gold standard I would, currencies. I would jump in and parody uh, uh, Bitcoin Tina and say that banking is a technological innovation to scale gold, right? And I would go as far, and this is my own idea, is that it, it wasn't fiat money that, that, that made gold uh, unusable as a global store of value. It's actually the internet. When the internet became prevalent, that's when gold no longer became viable. And that's when fiat had no competitor. And I think that's how we got to where we are. And here comes Bitcoin to kind of reintroduce uh, some sort of limitations uh, on the system. Yeah, um, that's an interesting take. I hadn't really thought of it in that way, but that's, I need to think about that. That's very interesting. Um, yeah, so, so I, yeah, I think fiat kind of had its time and its place and it served a purpose. But once that central authority kind of, loses trust or once you know and getting back to kind of the concept of this article which is about kind of information and how technology technology is now reached you know in this digital world you spoke of the internet in this digital world we live in where information can really scale so much faster as we all as we all have seen with all the network effects and all of the the ridiculously exponentially decreasing cost curves for things like solar and, and, you know, genome sequencing and things like that. I mean, it, it's, a, it's really an endless list. Obviously Moore's law has been around since the early 1970s, but um, so we've kind of entered this new era where like so much low entropy is being created, you know, so much order and so much information is being created and it's all being wasted because we don't have a monetary system that can allow it to, to prosper. And, the, the one of the reasons that I to your to your point one of the reasons that I think fiat has failed there's there's many reasons both some of them are kind of geopolitical and um, or just kind of these, these larger debt cycles that guys like Dalio have talked about but um, you know reaching their kind of natural limit but but one of the other reasons is that there's just too much information now and and a central authority can no longer be the uh, the arbiter of managing all of that information. And so now, like you said, gold is no longer, gold is extremely centralized. You know, the IMF, US, China own huge amounts of, of gold reserves just you know, on a central bank level, let alone all of the hoarding that's done um, across the world in, in kind of private gold reserves. And, and also the, the very fact that we don't even know the amount of, you know, Tons. I mean, I think we think there's around 190,000 tons of gold um, that have been mined that are existing and floating around. But we have no idea. It's kind of like uh, ETH. You know, it's kind of like Ethereum. It, it, you kind it of doesn't have solve a, the monetary entropy <laughs> problem that Bitcoin solves. No, it doesn't. And it doesn't allow you know, information that's scaling exponentially to continue to do so. And so, so that's where I think a decentralized money is, is so vital and a money that you know is taking uncertainty down to zero. I mean, there's there's certainly plenty of other protocols that might make that claim, but you can't know it, and it's already been done. And so, why do you even need to know it? Is the question I would I would ask. I think where this goes in terms of the ultimate end game is probably um, a swift adoption. That's well be the result of a policy mistake you know so what i was what i was saying before um is is in that environment and if you think of that kind of normal distribution curve normal bell curve that we all learn about about kind of statistical probability um you had this really fat middle part which is 
that Goldilocks era where things were like, there's a lot of different, um, there's a lot of different potential outcomes that were all fell in that Goldilocks zone. So we, we were in that real sweet spot for 10 years, at least from an investor standpoint, not from society, which was seeing inequality grow um, abnormally and, and all sorts of kind of in, you know, financial instability kind of um, seeding itself. Um, but now what we have is a very, very skinny distribution curve and very, very fat tails. And on the left side, you have this deflationary fat tail. And on the right side, you have this kind of extreme inflationary tail. Right. And I think Lou Groman said a very similar thing to what I kind of was articulating to my investment team, which was, um, you know, the Fed thinks they have a dial on the economy. I think you said this in an interview recently, you know, and I, and I thought this was a great, you know, kind of way of thinking about it. The Fed thinks they have this dial that if things get too hot, they can just kind of turn the dial a little bit and tweak the, the gears. And anyone who's a kind of a student of Austrian economics knows that, like, this is all impossible. You can't really, there's not, there's not like some central authority that can really, uh, use their 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 strings to kind of manage the the puppets of the economy in, in in any in any kind of coherent way. But but even more than that, beyond that, is that the Fed thinks that this one tool they have can actually control all of these things in a very incremental way. But what they will find is that when they try to control it, if inflation does start to really get out of hand, for example, and they try to kind of raise interest rates, for example. Of nomos and you know equities have a uh, have a tantrum. The bond market kind of implodes. The dollar you know um, might might rally at first, but 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 then what they're going to be forced to do very very quickly dial is a switch. It's an on and off switch, and so you either have inflation or you have deflation. And if you have a deflationary outcome, which is like maybe think of it like a 1929 style financial crisis you very quickly have to inflate because you just have way, 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 way too much way to get out of that. So, so I do think when you talk about kind of where the adoption, potentially I can see it being from a policy misstep that causes at first another deflationary burst, kind of like what we saw in March of 2020, which if that affected Bitcoin in the same way would be another amazing buying opportunity because I think that would be like kind of the last straw in terms of people's trust in the system. Investors come in last March when when the world changed and said, aha, like something's not right here. I think that will happen on a much larger scale the next time it happens. Yeah, uh, that was an epic rant. Um, <laughs> I think you hit on a lot of things. Uh, and here, I'll, I'm going to throw in with my, my two sats here. I, I like to compare... Uh, Bitcoin to fiat, the same way that you can kind of historically look at why did Google and search engine keyword search engine optimization beat out Yahoo and kind of like manual uh, curation, right? So they're trying to get the economy going right manually. And Bitcoin is, you know, mm -hmm. automating monetary policy, removing monetary entropy and producing better information. Uh, and if you were to look at Google versus Yahoo, um, Yahoo had a massive staff of people who um, were trying to like index the internet, right, and create the best directory. And then you, Google just said, "No, we're gonna we're gonna do keywords and we're gonna rank those," and that created an exponentially better and more scalable directory. And I think that Bitcoin is gonna do the same thing in all central banks. It's just gonna destroy them. Yeah. No, I think that's that's a great analogy. Um, and I think one of the reasons, you know, if people had so many high hopes for the internet to be this de decentralizing uh, force of, of nature. And it, of course, it had about the world pre-internet versus post. It's way more decentralized than it. But it's also been a source of, of massive centralization as well, where you have um, gatekeepers and, 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 and lots of centralized power that has all of that was operating in a fiat system and like so you you can't you know so if you think of like all decentralized layer on top of a centralized layer eventually that that, de that that decentralized application will become centralized so you really need to solve this base layer problem and then actually you don't need decentralization i mean this gets back into the altcoin debate and, and, and by the way don't get me wrong like i i came into this space probably more enthusiastic about DeFi. I was sold initially. I was kind of sold on that DeFi 
you know, coming from a financial background, I saw the value in kind of disintermediating the banking system. And, um, but of course, as I fell down the rabbit hole, I started to realize that these were all kind of, uh, uh, you know, false, false hopes and, and not really addressing the fundamental problem, which is the, the, the base layer of the system. And if you solve that, if you solve the base layer, then you can develop all sorts of central centralized applications on top of that. I think Nick Sabo talks a lot about that too, which is like, you know, like you, you don't, or sorry, it was Jimmy Song who talks a lot about that. Like you don't need a blockchain for every um, solution on top of, on top of a blockchain based system. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people get it wrong. They're like, oh, I'm just going to create a better blockchain, and 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 they're they're kind of missing the forest for the trees with with that conclusion. Um, so I do think not only you know a great case example of, of how the world quote unquote could become a better place. I actually think the internet um, will just naturally like I don't even mean we need all these DeFi kind of applications on top of it. Now of course Bitcoin will layer and it is layering, um, but. Um, and that will be great. And there's a lot of amazing innovation going on there. But um, I, 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 I think we will find that once that that base layer is ubiquitous, that a lot of these problems kind of fall into place. Like a lot of these solutions kind of fall into place, and the internet will naturally become more decentralized. And um, some of these larger tech companies may become more dis- intermediate themselves. Yeah. I actually wrote an article called the sovereign company thesis. And it's this idea of like what happens when just your normal run of the mill centralized company starts adopting Bitcoin, really like holding their own keys, running their own node. And then what happens when they start saying like, Hey, I'm going to be on the Bitcoin standard and I'm going to take advantage of geographical arbitrage. Like, what does that do? And like, yeah. honestly, the, the, the possibilities are endless. And like, I think that's the first major chip in like the current um, world of, you know, nationality and, and limited, uh, geo, you know, geologic, uh, geographical mobility. Um, I think that's going to be a major breaking point there. And, um, CK, I'm a perfect example of that. (laughs) I just moved my family and I just moved to Miami, uh, from New York. I lived in New York for 16 years. Um, you know, New York was no longer providing us with the solutions that we wanted. We weren't getting what we wanted at relative to the cost of living there and of course covid enabled a lot of change but so is crypto you know so so you know crypto is creating so much financial freedom for people that um you know obviously like guys like balaji talk a lot about this kind of you know digital nomad future and you see guys like francis suarez who's the mayor of miami um basically incentivizing people to come to his city and, and do business here and grow here. And we, we fortunately live in a kind of a federalist system that allows a lot of that, um, you know, that, that migration to occur. Um, a lot of countries don't have that, you know, you're either in the system or, or you're out, you know, you need to find another country to live in. Um, but Bitcoin fixes that as well. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Like the U S has, let's call it legal interstate or intercountry jurisdictional arbitrage um and bitcoin flattens it you know bitcoin brings that to the world and you know i'm i'm optimistic that we will have choice in jurisdictions and like one of my favorite books the sovereign individual talks about that um but hey aaron i think we could we could continue talking i'm definitely going to have you on more uh, content for bitcoin magazine and excited to publish future thoughts if you're uh, willing to uh to donate them to uh, to the cause that is Bitcoin Magazine. This article in particular just absolutely blew my mind, and uh, I'm, I'm I got even more out of it from talking to you about it. So uh, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Anytime, CK. It's good to finally meet you. Yeah. So I guess you know you. Are, I think you're criminally underfollowed, and I've been showing this uh, this article pretty heavily, and I will continue to. Uh, but, uh, where can people learn more about you? And I know you're trying to keep a slight low profile, but the Bitcoiners need to know the man behind the article. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I'm kind of new to my involvement in the social media aspect of all of this, but, um, I, I do want to kind of contribute to the community and that's kind of what got me to start, um, put, putting these thoughts out there more publicly. Um, but yeah, you can, you can find me on Twitter, uh, is at Ludi, uh, Magister, L-U-D-I. M-A-G-I-S-T-R. Um, and you can find me on Medium as well and under um, Aaron S. 
And, and you'll also find my medium link and the link to this article on, on my Twitter profile. Awesome. Well, uh, I, you know, I know that we are going to meet up at Bitcoin 2021 as well. So excited to see you over in the land of freedom that is uh, Florida and Miami. Um, but yeah, until then, to all yeah. the listeners, give the article a read. I truly like it. I, I thought it was just ex- exceptional. And honestly, like very few pieces of content, like, like help me connect the dots like this one did. So uh, I think it will will for you, the listener as well. Um, and y'all, if you like this content, follow me at CK underscore snarks, follow Bitcoin magazine at Bitcoin magazine. Give us those fast star reviews. Uh, you know, the drill until then, peace. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.